Well, it is always a delight to share God's Word with you on Sunday morning, and it's especially a privilege on this Father's Day. And I would like to echo what has already been said about the fathers in this room, um, especially when it comes to the physical fathers, just the love, the care, and the protection that a a father provides for their child. It's a reflection um, of the love, care, and protection that our Heavenly Father provides for us. And even in this room, there are many people that would identify as spiritual fathers because of the impact and the influence they've had on others um, in their Christian walk. So thank you to all of you for your witness um, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would like to begin our time this morning by asking you a question that is very relevant to the society that we live in. So I imagine this is something you've thought of before, and if you're older, you've probably thought about it more because you've seen the shift, you've seen the change in the culture. I know even over the last five to ten years, I have seen um, this question and the responses to this question change. And the question is, what do you think is the greatest attribute an employee can possess? What do you think of the greatest attribute an employee can possess? So I serve as the pastor of community development here at Faith Church And I work with a lot of neighborhood revitalization, affordable housing, and I get to rub shoulders with a lot of folks in the community. So whether it be nonprofit leaders, even some elected officials, um, bosses, business owners, and it seems like everybody's looking for something different these days, and it just seems like the climate has been changing. So one of the common qualities I often hear from employers is that they're looking for employees who are hard workers. Now that's pretty obvious, right? Uh, We've always been looking for hard workers when it comes to employees. Someone that is willing to work to earn what you're paying them. Now, another quality that's often spoken about, and spoken about more recently especially, is passion. So employers are looking for employees that are passionate about what they're doing. So they want someone who's not just there to, to punch in and punch out, but they're wanting someone who's really going to be invested. They're wanting, well, they're wanting to find someone who loves what they do, and this is something that's been talked about a lot frequently. But probably the most common character quality that an employer is looking for in an employee these days is probably rather shocking. To some of you, it might not be that shocking. And it's that they're looking for an employee who will show up. They're looking for an employee who will just come to work. So they're oftentimes having problems finding people show up to work, but also even showing up for an interview. And now some of us in the room are bosses and some are business owners. But as Christians, all of us here today know that good character qualities of a person, employee or not, go deeper than a person being a hard worker, being passionate, or being a committed individual. Those qualities, whether you're committed, passionate, or you work hard at what you do, those are all symptomatic of other character qualities that run deeper in a person, character qualities that are really um, to the core of a human being. And these core attributes and virtues produce not only employees who represent God well, but they produce fathers, mothers, children, neighbors, and the like that function in a God-glorifying manner, and many of these attributes we can find in the beginning of Second Peter. So turn with me, if you will, to Second Peter chapter 1, and you can find Second Peter on page 183 in the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. So our church's theme um, for this year is Hope for Everyday Life, and this summer we're doing a series called Hope for Fruitful Service, and that's because hope-filled people live out their hope in practical ways. 
And to do that, what we're doing is we're isolating um, our time on the seven character qualities given in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. And what we plan to do is use an example of Scripture each Sunday to walk through and illustrate that um, attribute. So we're in this text because these qualities are qualities that believers should be pursuing at all times in their Christian walk. The qualities desired in the workforce, um, whether they are in this season or in another, they often come and they go, what, what em- employers are work- looking for. But the qualities we find here in Second Peter are timeless, and they're to be found in Christians throughout the history of the church. And in the past two weeks, we've actually had the opportunity to go- walk through knowledge and moral excellence from this text. And this morning, we're going to be spending time focusing on the fruit of godliness. So follow along with me as I read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. So it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant of, and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So as you can see in this passage, Godliness is something that all Christians are called to pursue, and we're to apply all diligence in our pursuit of it. And now, godliness can be described in a, very, a variety of ways. So it's often described as a reverence toward God or as having a Godward attitude, meaning someone who is godly is someone who recognizes that they live under God, they live under a creator, um, they're in relation to him, they want to know about him, they want to know who he is, and they want to do the things that he wants them to do. Another way to describe godliness is oftentimes it's described this way, and it's pursuing righteousness rather than unrighteousness because God is characterized by righteousness. So it's choosing to please God um, in moments of trial. It's choosing to please God in every area of life. And when there's a temptation to sin, it's fleeing from that sin and choosing to please the Lord. And it goes without saying that this is a quality of immense value, not just for this present life, but also for the life to come. And that's exactly what we see the Apostle Paul write in 1 Timothy. He writes, Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness, for body discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So in in contrast to many of the temporal things in this world, such as physical fitness in this case is what Paul's referring to, godliness has eternal implications. And Paul continues to write about godliness in 1 Timothy, where he commands us to flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance, and gentleness. 
So it's clear that Paul believes in the importance and the foundation that godliness plays in the Christian life. And Paul is a fascinating subject when it comes to the topic of godliness because he is one of the most godly men in the scripture that we can see. He writes about godliness often, and we also have the opportunity of seeing the Apostle Paul when he's not a godly man. And that's why this morning we're going to take a look at the life of the Apostle Paul as we study the topic of godliness. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Typically we're only in one longer passage for a morning, but today we have the privilege of walking through two of them. And if you're not familiar with Paul, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ And he became an apostle after Jesus died, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And we know a lot about Paul because he wrote a lot of the New Testament, but also because he is one of the major subjects of the book of Acts. Like we said, Paul is a very godly man, but he wasn't always a godly man. In fact, before Paul became a believer, his job or his purpose in life is what he saw it was to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. He believed that he was doing the work of God by hurting Christians and sometimes even um, seeing them martyred. He was a Pharisee in, in Israel, so he was at um, one of the highest, statu- or highest statuses that one could arise to in that day. And, and Paul was against the Lord Jesus until one day Jesus met him in a vision on the road as Paul was on his way to threaten and hurt more Christians. And in that time, God changed the heart of the Apostle Paul so that Paul was no longer an enemy of God, but one who wanted to serve God and live a life that was godly. So Paul was made new because of the power of Jesus Christ in his life, and that's what motivated Paul to pursue godliness. So follow along with me as I read in Philippians chapter 3. So Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame." who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power he has even to subject all things to himself." So in our time remaining this morning, we're going to be looking at three actions of making every effort to add to your saving faith with the attribute of godliness. And the first action you can take toward godliness in your life is that you're to establish a proper view of God's plan of salvation. So before Paul became a Christian, before um, he was um, born again, Paul had a wrong view of saving He had a wrong view of salvation. He thought he could earn his way into the kingdom of God. He thought he could work his way um, to please God. And his understanding radically changed when Jesus Christ entered his life. Consider what Paul believed. He says, we began as Christ's enemies. Philippians 3, 6, it said, as to zeal, Paul was a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness, which is in the law, he was found blameless. For someone to be godly, they must first recognize that they're not godly. God's Word says that all people are sinners. We are all, by nature, people that pursue our own pleasures. We pursue um, our own desires, and we're not the worst we could be, but we all, by far, pursue our own kingdom over Christ's kingdom. Our actions and our desires prove that. And godliness is a reverence towards God, And we are naturally ungodly in the fact that we want to be reverent toward ourselves first. So instead of believing that God is the center of the universe, we often believe that we're the center of existence. And instead of the the creator creating the creation to worship him, we flip it. Meaning that we desire the creator to worship us. And that is sinful. We might not have persecuted the church in the same way that Paul did, as having seen men stoned. But we have most definitely been opposed to Christ's kingdom. And it's because it's in the way of our kingdom. And Paul came to realize this, and so should we. And when Paul realized this, he knew that his works could not make him a godly man because our works are not enough. You see, Paul had quite the resume going for him, as we just read. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He obeyed the law. And he had reached one of the highest statuses in that religious system in that day. He was a Pharisee. And if anyone had the right to claim godliness by their works, who wasn't? It was Paul. Paul was the guy who could do that. 
But Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. And for us to pursue godliness, we must do the same. Our works are not good enough to earn our way into the kingdom of God. In fact, the only thing that our attempts to earn our way into the kingdom of God do is they dig the hole deeper. Because our works deserve eternal punishment um, in hell. They deserve um, death. That's what happens when we try to earn our way to heaven. That's what our sin does. We deserve punishment from God because we have sinned against him. And our works are not good enough to satisfy the justice of God, and the price is too high for any person to earn their way into Christ's kingdom. And that is why Paul rejoices in Christ. And that is because Christ, his cross, is a sufficient payment. The cross is a sufficient payment for our sin. Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, Paul was able to pursue godliness in this life because he had been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So before Paul was a Christian, he was seen as unrighteous in God's eyes. The only righteousness he had was his own, and Paul himself has said that wasn't enough. But God in Christ Jesus gave Paul his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, so that Paul could be redeemed. And it was once Paul was saved by the grace of God that he could then pursue godliness with all diligence. So if you're here today and you don't yet know the Lord Jesus or you have not yet come to an understanding of this message of the gospel, we would encourage you to today repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ Jesus because God is willing to forgive you today of your sin, to give you Jesus' righteousness and make you right with him. Pursuing godliness is one of the largest parts of the Christian life, but you can't grow in godliness if you have not yet placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. When you place your faith in Jesus, God will then declare you righteous in his eyes, and you'll be set on that trajectory for godliness, to conforming to the image of his Son. And that brings an important distinction today when we are talking about this subject, because there's a distinction between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Someone becomes positionally righteous before God when they're redeemed. So the day that someone becomes a a Christian, they're declared right in God's eyes. They're legally no longer guilty. And in fact, they're seen as perfect in God's eyes, not because of their own perfection, like how Paul said, but because of Christ's perfection. And practical righteousness, on the other hand, is related to positional righteousness in that the practical follows the positional. So when someone becomes a believer, they're instantly righteous in God's eyes, but they definitely do not act righteous in every way in their life. If someone, for example, is a lazy, complaining, discontent person, the day they become a believer, guess what they're probably going to be? A lazy, discontent, complaining Christian. Because practical righteousness is is worked out throughout someone's life. So they're not supposed to stay lazy. They're not supposed to stay 
complaining. Have you ever heard someone press the keys on a piano that is out of tune? It sounds sour. It sounds bitter. Even if someone, a masterpiece of the piano, a master musician would sit down and play something like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or something that is just one of the most um, exemplary pieces of music you could ever imagine on a piano that's out of tune, it still sounds bad. Now, many theologians have um, equated our growth and godliness throughout our Christian walk as the tuning of a complex instrument like a piano. So a piano that is perfect, a piano that is fully in tune would be that of Christ. But when we become Christians, the piano has some sour notes. And throughout our Christian walk, what happens is we are tuned so that by the end of our Christian life, when we are with Jesus, that the piano will sound like the Lord Jesus' piano, meaning that we will resemble his character in every way. We will be perfect as he is perfect. So the lazy Christian will one day be a productive Christian. The person who is complaining will then be a thankful person. And the one who works for his own kingdom will then be one who works for Christ's kingdom in every way. Some of the blessings of salvation come at our point of salvation, but many of the blessings, including godliness, come throughout our walk with Christ. And when you understand that this plan of God's salvation, it's then that you can continue to fix your eyes on the eternal. And Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A proper understanding of God's plan of salvation produces godliness because it's focused on eternity. It's focused on being with Christ someday. Godly people are people that are living with eternity in mind, and they're not just motivated, motivated by the consequences that are there today, but they're motivated and driven by the fact that we are living for eternity, and that is where our trajectory is set. And notice what Paul says here in verse 10. He says, he wants to be resurrected with Christ someday, but first that he wants to know Christ. He wants to know Christ, and that is why godliness demands that you pursue Christ above all. And what that means is to seek to know Christ Jesus. Paul writes, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So Paul sought to know Christ more and more. He valued the relationship he had with the Lord Jesus more than anything. Nothing compares to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ in the eyes of the Apostle Paul, and that's how it should be for us as well. Brothers and sisters, when you go to the Word, do you do it to know Christ Jesus? When you pray, do you do it so that you may grow closer to Christ? One of the dangers of discussing spiritual disciplines like reading the Word and prayer when we're talking about the topic of godliness is that we would begin to measure godliness by how much time someone spends in reading or in prayer. Now, don't hear me wrong. Godly people spend time in prayer. They spend time with the Lord, and godly people spend time reading the Word and getting to know the Lord. Otherwise, um, Godly people would not be growing in godliness if they were not in the Word. But godliness is not measured by the amount of time we spend here. Otherwise, the godliest people in the world would be people that you never saw. 
Because they'd be people that would lock the doors of their houses, they'd be reading the word all day, they'd be praying, and that would be their full-time job. No, that's not what the Scripture's teaching. To measure someone's godliness, or even your own, by the amount of time that you spend in that discipline would be almost a form of legalism. No, godliness is shown by how much someone knows Christ Jesus. And this theme, we can even see the Lord Jesus talk about this in John when he says, this is eternal life that they may know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So all Christians know Christ, but throughout our lives we grow to know him more and more. You cannot divorce the concept of knowing Christ and growing in godliness because Christ is the definition of godliness And as 2 Peter has already said, he is the provider of godliness. We read it says, Seeing that his divine power has been granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So any spiritual growth that we have now or will have in the future comes through the Son of God. And we have an important role to play in our spiritual growth. But our growth only comes because we're connected, because we're united with the one who is godly in every way. And that's why you should also be valuing Christ's purchase, Christ's purpose for your life. Value Christ's purpose in your life. And Paul even writes in Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's why the grace of God has appeared. That's why the Lord Jesus came. One of the main reasons that Jesus came was to make his people godly, to purify them, to transform them in godliness, which is why believers should allow Christ to change you. And Paul writes, he says, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. And what is Paul talking about here when he talks about the perfect? Again, this is referring to the difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. And this is an encouraging verse when you understand it because what it's saying is that God will do whatever is necessary in your life to put you in a place where you will grow in godliness. And there's many ways in which he does this. One is through his word, by the study of his word and understanding what he says that we come to know him, but also through our walk with other believers By having iron sharpening iron, that is when we can also grow in godliness. And and one of the other common ways is through trial. In times of trial, God shows us what we are worshiping, and it's a time to reevaluate and to be set on a trajectory that is growing in our faith and growing in godliness. God has given you the blessings of his son. He's given you the blessings of his word, and he's given you a family of believers And he's done his part in our Christian growth, meaning he's given us the resources to grow. But what does it look like for you to be growing in godliness in this next season? And if you don't know what that looks like, maybe you're here today and you say, I know I need to grow, but I don't actually know where. I just don't know what that looks like even. Maybe I haven't even thought of that. 
what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to reach out to someone. I know some of you are in Bible studies. Some of you um, have different fellowship groups, whether it be faith groups, point man groups. You know, some of you attend Purdue Bible Fellowship. And there's also many pastors here that would be willing to chat with you about what does it look like for you to grow in godliness in this next phase of life. And for Father's Day, this is a call to be an example to family and others. And the first way you can do this is by, in humility, being an imitator of Paul imitating Christ. At this time, we cannot physically see the Lord Jesus. It's not like when the disciples were with Christ for three years, they could physically see the Lord Jesus and they could imitate him by daily observation. But we don't have that. However, Christ has given us many godly people around us who live their lives for him. And just like how others followed Paul, we can follow others we see, and others will follow us. So if you're a father here today, I would encourage you to view yourself as a window to Christ. When your children look at you, they should see Christ through you. It's almost as if you were standing in between your child and Christ, and you were transparent. Meaning, when your child looks at you, they cannot help but look through you and see Christ on the other side. So they see the actions, they see the desires, they see the thoughts, they see the words that come out of your mouth, and they cannot help but see that is what Christ would do. This is, char- this is a character quality coming out of my Father that is something that comes out of Christ, and I can see Jesus working through my dad. I would encourage you to think that way, that you are a window or someone that's transparent so that others would see the glory of God. And this isn't just for fathers in the physical sense, but it's also for those, anyone in this room who wants to have a spiritual influence on someone else. We have the opportunity to have people imitate us so that they would imitate Christ and so that others would come to be growing in godliness as well. And imitation is one of the greatest Um, tools that we can use in our Christian walk um, for us to grow and for others to grow. But also in addition to imitation, there is instruction, which is why fathers should instruct your children in godliness. And Paul writes this as well in Ephesians 6. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Word of God is the foundation for godly living. So with affordable housing that I help lead in the north end of Lafayette, we build a lot of houses. And just like any house, the house needs a proper foundation. And for a godly life, there needs to be a proper foundation of truth in order to build godly character. And remember, it's not that the one who memorizes the most verses wins or the one who reads the most books wins, but it's the one who applies the Word of God to his or her life is the one that grows in godliness. Sometimes we'll clean out houses. Um, Sometimes they're cluttered. Sometimes they're um, rather gross because of um, the houses we deal with are often old, meaning sometimes they're over 100 years old. And by nature, anything in the community that is 100 years old, well, has 100 years worth of stuff in it that needs to be cleaned out. And sometimes we have this itch, we have this desire to go to the store and to just buy every sort of cleaning solution we can. There's a desire to buy like a 55-gallon drum of Dawn dish detergent in hopes that we'll be able to solve all our problems. But that's not how cleaning a house works. In fact, 
knowing someone who knows how to clean it, all they need is probably two or three of the right cleaning solutions, and they know, need to know how to apply it well. And it's actually similar to our time in the Word or our use of the Word of God. Memorizing the Word is a very valuable um, tool that we can use in our Christian walk, and we should be memorizing a lot of Scripture. But oftentimes, we don't need to memorize 50 different truths to grow in an area of godliness. Oftentimes, we just need one or two truths properly applied that will produce the godly result in our life that God wants it to. And fathers can see this in the way that they parent, and others can see this in the way they mentor and disciple others. It's like kneading dough. It's, it's working it in. It's marinating like a steak, for example. You're baking it into what, whatever you're working with that people would take the Word of God and they would apply it to their life. And that is the real fruit of godliness. It's seen when the Word is lived out in everyday life. And godliness should also cause you to cultivate a heart for the lost. Because godliness is focused on living a Godward life, it seeks to grow God's kingdom. And this is, I think, one of the common areas that has been a temptation for Christians to believe, and it's that God primarily uses giftedness to further his kingdom. I've heard this before, and I think you probably have as well. Oh, Lord, I wish you would just save this one individual because this one individual has these gifts and abilities that if they were in your church, it would radically change how your church would operate. Maybe it's a person who is good at teaching. You see someone in the world who, man, this person is very skilled with their tongue. If this person were just a Christian, oh, the church would be radically different. Or this person is so outgoing. If this person were a Christian, they would be winning groups of people to Jesus Christ, or maybe a different person, she has the gift of organization or the skill of administration. If, if she was a part of the body, things would look radically different around here because we'd just be way more organized. I would encourage you to not think in the way that God primarily uses giftedness. Now, he does use giftedness. In fact, we were just in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and it, it says that he has given us specific spiritual gifts to use for his kingdom. However, God primarily uses godliness to further his kingdom, and our greatest example of that this morning is Paul. Paul had it all. Paul had reached the top of the spiritual totem pole in Israel. He had been given gifts and abilities. He had the status. He had the clout, and yet it's clear that if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, God did not use Paul because of his gifts. Paul, God used Paul because Paul was a godly man. Your godliness is one of the greatest influences that you have on both believers and unbelievers. And that should be something that fathers, especially today, should be thinking about if you have children in the home that are not yet believers, that your godliness is the primary tool with that and the instruction of the Word that will win your child to Christ. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so thankful to have a body here at Faith Church West um, that's like this one. God has given us many gifted people, but more than that, he's given us godly people, people that pursue the Lord, people that view their time, talents, and treasures as something that's not of their own, but something that belongs to the Lord. During the 9.30 service, I am typically not in this room. I am typically in the corner of the building teaching the youth of our church, those um, in between the ages of 11 and 18. 
And oftentimes, at the beginning of the 9.30 service, I'll see a couple ushers come in with chair carts. And that's always a good sign, because what does that mean? That means more people have come today to worship the Lord um, here on the Lord's day. Meaning more people came than we even thought were going to come, and they had to get more chairs so that those people could sit and worship with us. And that is just a praise for Faith Church West. And in Jesus Christ, God has given us everything we need to grow in godliness. And this is just another reason why we have hope for fruitful service. And it's because the hope that godliness brings is a hope of pleasing God through our character, but also because of what it produces for God. Godliness spreads like wildfire. If you've had the opportunity to make an impact on the kingdom of God, um, you know this, and I know Faith Church West has been doing that. I've been here for eight years now, and this building has been here for ten, and God has been using this in the lives of people, and this is just a, a reason to be thankful and a, and a reason to remember that God is using godly character to bring others to himself. And lastly, in our passage, we can see that godliness is an example of patiently waiting for the Lord. And Paul writes, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You see, one day the practical will become like the positional. When we're with Christ, then we will see him and we will be like him as he is. And we'll finally possess the character of Christ and we will be with our heavenly Father for eternity. So as we enter in this, into this week, I would encourage you to be dwelling on the topic of godliness, of godly character. First, because of the eternal value of the topic, but also because of how much of an effect it has on God's kingdom. Fathers can represent their heavenly father well in the way that they love their children, and whether they be physical or spiritual children. And through godliness, we can make an impact on everyone around us and point them towards Christ. You can do this in unique ways if you're a father, but even if you're not a father, you have this opportunity. And as we learn ways we need to grow in godliness, let us always remember that godliness comes through our relationship with the Lord Jesus. He provides us all we need for godliness, because he is the one who is godly and the one that provides that godliness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning that we can come together and study your word here in Second Peter and Philippians. Thank you that you've given us the Apostle Paul as someone who was originally not godly, but then was able to pursue godliness because you entered into his life. You gave him eternal life through Christ Jesus. And we pray that we would be meditating on this eternal life we've been given today, God, that we would remember that the godliness that you're working out in us comes through our relationship with you. It comes through knowing the Lord Jesus because he is the provider of our spiritual lives. He's the one that sustains us every day, and it's because of him that we have an example to follow. We pray for the fathers in the room, God, that you would continue to work through them, that whether they're children or believers or unbelievers, that they would grow toward you, God, that they would look more like Jesus, and that for everyone else in the room as well, that we would be imitators of Christ and that we would be pleasing you with godly lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.